Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis. This is one of my favorite podcasts with Dr. Katherine Mannix. Dr. Mannix is a palliative care specialist, and this discussion just sort of blew my mind. It helped me think about things differently. It made me laugh a little bit. I could have talked to her all day. I think it's really deep and rich in the academia, but also the experience around grief and loss in modern day times, but also historically. I hope you enjoy it. She's really extraordinary. Thanks so much for being here. So I have been stalking Instagram for a little while, having read much of her work. And I would suggest you do the same because not only are you going to learn about the world that she is in, in grief and loss that she's going to talk to us about in a moment, death and dying, but also she has incredible art that she creates on her, on her Instagram that you can see. I'm going to just give a quick bio. Dr. Mannix has just reminded me that she's committed to the death and dying work, but she's retired from clinical practice. So let me just tell you about who she has been in the world, and then she'll fill us in. Dr. Mannix qualified as a doctor in 1982 and worked in palliative care starting in 1986. She consulted with Newcastle Hospitals, the NHS Trust, and in the early 90s, she also trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist and launched the UK's first dedicated CBT palliative care clinic. She has also been involved in NCPC Dying Matters events over the years and has been a longtime advocate for better end of life care. Dr. Mannix, thank you so much for being here. This is really, truly a delight for me. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So we, you and I had a little conversation off mic about where you are right now. So just tell my listeners where you are in the world. Okay, so I, I live in England. I live in the very far northeast of England. If you go very much further north from my house, you're in Scotland. It's very beautiful. It's quite remote. What can I say? It's lots of history. It figures in Shakespeare. It's just, it's lovely. Mm. And I worked mainly for the last 10 years of my career in a very big teaching hospitals organization, lots of hospitals, one big organization to run their palliative care specialist services. And before that, I worked in community palliative care teams, other hospitals, a variety of hospices. So there's a, there's a British American mismatch here. Yeah, hospices that's good. for us are buildings yep. where palliative care takes place. Yeah. Hospice isn't a program here. Yes. Tell, tell, um, tell my listeners what palliative care is. You and I know, and it's, you know, again, it's one of those sort of like medical doctory terms. My experience with my clients in my office is that even the most well-educated folks don't necessarily know what that word means or what that means from um, a perspective of death and dying. Okay. So palliative care is a branch of medical, nursing, and other healthcare sciences that focuses very specifically on managing the consequences, the physical and emotional and social and spiritual existential consequences of having an illness. Now, the best way of managing the consequences of having an illness is to get rid of the illness. Yes. So there's a bit of clue going on there, isn't there? We tend to see people where the illness 
can't be got rid of. But you don't have to be so sick that you're nearly dying to see a palliative care expert. In fact, if you only see them at that stage, you've absolutely missed not just one bus, but like a whole fleet of buses. So my team would have worked with people who are going to be cured, for example, from people who have cancer in their esophagus or stomach. They have really, really major surgery. You know, one yeah. surgeon's going in through their abdomen and another one's coming in through their rib cage to get in, to get the esophagus out, then pulling the ends together. Ooh, it feels sore just to think about it. That poor person, having had that almost 12-hour surgery, needs to be up and fit and ready to have chemotherapy or radiotherapy or both within a very short period of time mm. to cure their cancer. So the symptom management experts work alongside the surgeons to get that person fit enough to have their curative treatment. Mm. And that's great. So palliative care is about relieving symptoms and very often it's symptoms for people whose illness itself can't be cured, but we're about how well you live with it. It sounds like the description that you gave that, that therapy could be a part of that, that, that because you said psychological and spiritual, and that strikes me as an important measure to reckon with, because while that may be the case in the United States, I don't know that that's a front facing concept that people would necessarily understand that part of how you get well, maybe in that moment, getting ready for chemotherapy might be talking to someone about what end of life care also looks like that navigating both possibilities at the same time. Oh, absolutely right. So in the palliative care service that I worked in, we had specialist psychologists, we had doctors, nurses, physiotherapist, occupational therapist, access to chaplaincy team, access to pharmacy advice. You know, it's a really big, broad team. Mm -hmm. And what's really nice in palliative care teams is they're multidisciplinary and it's all about the teamwork. So you might find nurses doing things that you would conventionally have associated with doctors until it gets to the point where it actually has to be a doctor but you will also find doctors doing things where people think oh, why, why didn't the nurse do that well because I was the person who was there right then and that was the thing that needed doing I have taken extra training to have this cognitive behavior therapy expertise so I would be part of the extended psychological therapies team where our psychologist might say, you know, we've been referred this particular patient. I think actually you'd be best fit as their therapist because a mm. lot of their work is about how they deal with the physical symptoms that they're needing to live with now. So that combined kind of doctor psychology hat is really mm. helpful for being able to work with that person. So there's a little bit of role blurring, mm. but you can only do that when you know what the expertise of each of the different members is to be able to value that, to know when you're swimming out of your depth and it's time now to get the real expert in the team in. Yeah, I can see the benefits of both, right? Which is having specific experts with specific expertise and also feeling comfortable swimming at least in the shallow end of another expertise for now so that they can you know, attend to whatever the needs are. I'm curious about what hospice the different definition there, because in this country, 
as I said, I'm not sure that everybody understands what palliative care is, but I think people have a better belief of understanding, meaning they believe they understand what hospice care is. But again, having 20 years experience of what I believed was good deaf and dying education. When my father was ill in Massachusetts in a small seaside town, I learned, you know, and again, this is very specific, I think, to the U.S. system, but I learned that there's a lot of nuance in all of those words. I assumed when we were looking at end-of-life care for him that that meant hospice, And that we were able to decide that when he was clearly dying of his illness. But what I would argue is he was dying from, of his illness, you know, even before we, it was diagnosed, he had small cell cancer. People don't typically survive that he, because he was on an experimental drug, which I won't remember now, it was not chemotherapy, but it was something that was intended to extend his life. He didn't qualify for hospice because if you're trying to extend your life, then in this country, the insurance company says, okay, well then we're not going to send you the specialized care of hospice nurses. And perhaps the most shocking to me was I assumed hospice meant he goes to one of those beautiful homes that I had seen in the movies where people make him tea and there's good music in the background. And actually what it meant was he could have hospice. He was being cared for in a rehab facility. So people there were ostensibly rehabbing to get well, although when you walked into the facility, that is not what it looked like. So he was being cared for in a rehab facility. So he could have the hospice nurses come to him there, or ultimately what we decided, which was to bring all the equipment and those nurses to our home. When they walked into our home, they were simply at home care nurses that we were paying for out of our pockets The minute he stopped taking that medication, the very same nurses became hospice workers who were paid for by his Medicare funds. So that's, that's a very specific, but I'm curious in what's the difference between how you would look at palliative care and hospice in the UK? Okay. We wouldn't. There's no difference. Okay. So I worked as a palliative care consultant Yep. My principal practice was in hospital where I was seeing people from diagnosis to last days of life alongside this big multidisciplinary team who also saw those same patients from diagnosis to last days of life. Generally, we were helping to get people home where we had colleagues in the community palliative care team who would work with their family doctor and the community regular community nursing service to offer support and advice we're not hands-on clinicians so the nurses in our team are not um, moving you in the bed giving you a bath things like that this is about expertise and advice to the nurses who do have that role in your care we have services that we call hospices they are buildings some people will attend them as outpatients so I held my cognitive therapy clinic in the hospice there was a rehabilitation get you walking again sort your pain out facility in the hospice there is a a daycare facility with a fleet of volunteer drivers people in the local community who go out and collect people bring them in for the day that's a really great way of 
allowing families who are looking after a very sick person to have family time or to allow people to be able to get to work and yet this person can spend days in a safe place with people who understand what's going on yeah and then the beds so the beds are a little bit like an intensive care unit Mm -hmm. but for symptom management so you don't go to a hospice facility because you're dying yep you go to a hospice facility because you're living uncomfortably and you need to be surrounded by absolute experts, nurses who understand about pain control and dosing, people who understand about the difference between being breathless because your lungs don't work and being breathless because you're having a panic attack. People who know what dying looks like and go, get that woman's daughter here now. And the statistical probability is if you were admitted to a hospice in the UK, you're more than 50% likely to go home again feeling better than you were when you arrived because mm-hmm. you've had whatever it was that was causing you that distress sorted out. And of course, those people come and go and come and go. So there'll be people dying in the hospice facility, but they won't have come there because they were simply dying. You can, you can die with good supportive nursing in your own bed, in a rehab facility, in an elder care facility. Hospice beds have this very specific symptom management criterion for being admitted. I know a little bit more about this than the average bear. So our, our definitions here probably cross over more, but for the listening population, what we believe is once you hear someone is going into hospice or receiving hospice, that is the same as waiting for their end of days. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to not be true. People will say, I'm so shocked. My mother is being released from hospice. But again, from an educational standpoint, which I know, you know, you and I both have our own soapboxes about the notion that the general population doesn't have a better understanding is a failing across the cultural. It doesn't matter which one of which side in terms of just sort of the education. My parents were both in there. My father was 80. My mother was in her mid seventies when my dad died and they were scrambling to learn all this information. And I know that part of that is you know, as people, we don't want to look towards death until we have to, but also part of it is how, you know, again, for us in this country, how little information people expect to have and maybe even share with each other about death. Yeah. Do you know, it, it's fascinating. There's, there's such a good news story about palliative care. It seems to yeah. be, it seems to be a secret and it came, it came out of research that was centered on the hospitals around Boston, but actually recruited widely across the USA and also into Europe, including the UK. And what they did, this is, this is probably about 10 years old now, maybe a little bit okay. older than that. What they did was they took all new lung cancer patients for a chunk of time and said to them, would you like to join our study? So when you do research, the person says, yes, what will happen to me? And of course, the answer is, We can't tell you exactly what will happen to you because we have to randomize it so that we don't influence the outcome of the study. But either what will happen to you is you'll just get the best treatment that we can give you for as long as you can benefit from it. That's treatment arm one is what we were doing last week and last year. That's what some people will get. But some people will be randomized to get that plus being introduced to a special supportive care team which was a cunning rename of the palliative care service. Mm -hmm. 
So these people were recruited and average life expectancy, and I, I know that you know this, for, for people with new lung cancer at the time that this study ran was around nine months of living. Yeah. Okay, so these people came in and they were recruited and one half of them had treatment as usual and yeah, they lived about nine months. And the other half of them had treatment as usual plus access to palliative care specialists or supportive mm -hmm. care specialists. And something really interesting happened in the other group. So the other group had better mood, lower incidence of symptoms like breathlessness or pain. So the sorts of things that we would you know, associate as the problems that people might run into with lung cancer. They dropped out of anti-cancer treatment sooner mm. treatment group. Okay, so now we think, oh my God, they're all gonna die. No, actually, they lived on average three months longer than the people who didn't have the support of a palliative care service. They were more likely to die in their place of choice and to live longer in their place of choice. So if the palliative care team wasn't involved, people spent more days in hospital, more days in intensive care units, were likely to die on an intensive care unit on a ventilator. So because the group that had palliative care didn't opt for all of those things, not only did they have better quality of life and live longer, but it cost the health system less to offer them that extra service and then not have them use intensive care units that were of no benefit to them. So palliative care is really medicine's best kept secret, isn't it? It's doing everything that you would want in terms of helping you to live a better life. For lung cancer and some other cancers, although not for every cancer, it's got a survival benefit. And it allows you to meet the illness on your terms, including backing out of saying, you know, these treatments are making me feel too miserable. It's not worth it. I'd rather have somebody do something that helps my breathlessness, manages my pain, and not have to have the chemotherapy and feel sick. I got real chills when you were describing it for a number of reasons. One is a clinician just sort of thinking about how much clinical support we really are be able to give people, right? And so that feels humbling to me and inspiring to me. But also as the daughter of a, of a man who died of a cancer, I mean, I had this sort of accidental experience of learning my father's diagnosis and then turning and telling someone who was a doctor, who, a cancer doctor, and he didn't realize I was talking about my dad. And so in this one second, he said, oh, that guy's going to die in a year. And honestly, for it was terrible. I mean, I almost threw up, but it was also really helpful for me to hear. And, and so he became a resource when there was all this confusion for me. I hoped that I was able to sort of help transfer some of that to my dad, but I really needed the support of coming to understand. And I did have a year. I mean, he died like a year and four days after his diagnosis. So, you know, six months in, I really understood where we were headed, right? And I was given a lot of support and I sought a lot of support around what that meant. And so I was able to make the choice because I understood what was happening. I 
did a deep dive medically. What, you know, what does this mean? And came to sort of understand how the body shuts down and, and how the body dies of this cancer. I, I educated myself in that, but also all of the things that bring people peace around ending their life, being able to say goodbyes, making choices about where you want to be. What I said to my husband was, I would like to be able to spend time with him. So he feels loved by me in his last days. And my dad and I didn't have the easiest relationship. So that was such a gift because I think of the last year of his life as the best one we had, partly because I sort of dropped some of the frustration and disappointment of being the daughter of him and his particular personality constellation, but also because I think he understood that I did understand what was happening to him and that I was, I mean, quote unquote, okay with what was happening. Mm -hmm. It wasn't causing me anguish that he had to protect me from. We just sort of sat in it together. So we did things like talk about what he wanted for his funeral and you know, who who he wanted called and how he wanted that information conveyed. I think about that, that was done um, really selfishly, self-servingly so that I could feel okay. I mean, I did that for myself. Mm -hmm. What I know for him, because he said it all the time was that that was comforting to him. So the concept that you are describing, which I know must be filled with slow movements towards people making choices about how they want to live what is inevitably the last nine months year and and amazing to get three more months. I mean, I feel really sure that some of the quote unquote medical treatments that my dad had absolutely made him sicker, weaker, you know, had more negative hospital intervention than possibly he deserved or would have wanted. I just think that's sometimes the way that those things go, but to hear that there was a study done where they sort of played with the language a little bit and were able to come out and say, this is what we can offer. This is how we can do this. It it is fascinating, isn't it? And I think you put your your finger on something really important there when you're talking about what you knew and the conversations you were therefore able to have. I think that in life in general and in medicine in particular there is a reluctance to talk about dying there's not a good recognition of what ordinary dying actually involves and that's something you and I could talk about in a bit more detail in a minute but if you are familiar with ordinary dying and therefore you're not kind of nonplussed by it if you are a person who can talk about that, if that's where the conversation's going to go, then you bring that confidence into every conversation you have, whether it goes there or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that knowing that you can, if you need to, stops you from bringing a kind of defended self yeah. into the conversation. And that itself kind of relaxes the conversation. So even though you might end up not talking about dying nine consultations out of 10 as a palliative care doctor. Just the fact that actually, do you know what, if our conversation goes there, I'm right with you and it's gonna be okay. And I'll probably make you a cup of tea at that point as well. We can talk about whatever you need to talk about. And I won't feel that I'm talking about medical failure. I will think I'm talking about 
right. the fact that you're mortal, I'm mortal, and as Atul Gawande would say, what matters in the end? Right, because death is not failing at life. Death, you know, death is a process that we go through that ends our life. Yeah. When you just said that, what I thought was, wow, if if everybody made a 3% more effort to do what you just described, we would be in such better hands as a planet. I, I come into this more in the grief and loss work. So I work with clients who are bereaved, some who are dying, many of whom have been diagnosed as stuck in grief, which drives me insane. But, you know, a lot of what I do, and I said this to you before we got on air, a lot of what I do is I say, let me, let me just walk through the biophysical of what's going on for you. Let me tell you, and, and most of this is extrapolated from trauma, but let me tell you what, what's happening with your hippocampus. Like, like, let me explain to you why you can't sleep. Let's look at what's, what's being dysregulated inside your brain and the amount of just relaxation and comfort that you can physically see in someone where they're like, oh, I'm not doing this wrong. This is just what happens. Yeah. This is yeah. the trauma is something that is, you know, experienced from the, this very reptilian part of my brain. And literally everyone knows I have no control over it. Like, I think if we just started there, you know, if Oprah got up on a stage and said, let me tell you about what goes on with trauma in the brain. And we just had a, a little nugget. There would be already so much of that secondary loss that happens where friends are sick of you not wanting to come out because you're, you're still having a hard time or bosses who expect you to be able to do very detailed work, even though you've explained that you have some brain fog, you know, all of that, I think there would be more room for it. Right. Yeah, yeah. From your perspective, the person who is dying, the sort of mental anguish, like of not being able to be seen and heard because the people in the room can't tolerate it. Yeah. And honestly, that's at the, at the root of all good therapy is being able to say, I can sit with you as you are with no judgment and I don't need you to move. I can bear witness to your pain, but I do think because this task has been so undersupported that if we had the word I keep using in, in my work is like lay servers, you know, like if you go to a church service, there's the person who's been ordained that is meant to be celebrating in usually in a church, some element of like the last supper again. And there are people that are allowed to touch this and that, but then they have people come up from the pews who just know what's going on. And they're like, you stand there and you stand there and they know the rituals and they help. Yeah. And that's what I think about like, oh my gosh, if people could particularly at this time where there has been such concentrated death and loss, I mean, not just death also, you know, people have lost extraordinary things, but if everybody felt like, oh no, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit educated in this. Like I understand what this must feel like for you. I'm not a primary griever, but I, I, I get it that the, that the process would be less fraught, I think. I mean, that maybe is a hopeful notion, but we said this before, you know, there's the education and the knowing. We're all going to have to know at some point. It'd be yeah. better if we got there better educated. Okay. Right? And, and the knowledge, knowledge is power. Yeah. And once you have the power, you don't have to be all powerful. You can just be quietly yeah. confident. And that makes all the difference. So I was talking yesterday to some end of life care champions 
in a big health organization in the south of England. And I was showing them um, some, some slides about why I think we've got ourselves into such a pickle about dying and death. So the first slide is a graph just to prove I'm a scientist, you know? Yes, of course. Um, it's, it's, it's a graph of life expectancies at birth since 1850 to 2010, because our Office of National Statistics produces these 10 yearly returns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so actually this year, we'll get the returns up to April of uh, 2021. And so the data up to 2020 will, will be added to that graph. So when you look at the graph, what you see is that people in the 1800s and the early 1900s, life expectancy at birth, somewhere between 40 and 50 years people did not live to be old right and that's what everybody expected right and then you see life expectancy starting to rise over the first half of the 20th century so that's better housing better plumbing better sanitation beginning of child immunization programs then you see another change in the late 1940s which for us was the beginning of our national health service so now the whole of healthcare is paid for by a national insurance program that is taken out of people's pay packets as they earn it. Yep. So now anybody can access any part of the health service at the point they need it without being charged. So it's not that it's free, it's that we're yes. paying you for pay it. A bit, a bit, it's a bit like you, yep. you pay for education and roads and things like that in the USA. We yep. pay our health in the same way. And now this curve starts going up even more steeply, partly because people who used to die of things that would have been put writable anyway, now can go to hospital because they don't have to pay, but also because we've got new antibiotics, better anesthetics, yeah. we learn to transplant organs, we get better chemotherapy, we end up with those fancy dancy, not even chemotherapy drugs like your dad had. So we're getting better and better and better at stopping people from dying of things that used to kill them when they were children yep. or young adults or young old adults. So we live to be older and older and older. Okay. And that's, that's kind of great. And it's also kind of double-edged because actually what you get is two, three, four more decades of life, but they don't give you your twenties again and again and again. Yeah. You know, welcome to your 70s, your 80s, your 90s, to being over 100. That's a whole new thing. We've got to think about how do we live. That's so that. interesting. I've never thought of that before, that part of the reason we're bad at it is we haven't been doing it that long. We haven't been doing it for the God, sorts of I things. I love that, that. But the other thing is, so this graph is nice because my maternal grandmother, my nana, was born in 1900. Okay, so she was the same age as the year. So when she was in her 20s and 30s, it, it was, was the 1920s and 30s. She was the oldest girl in quite a big family. So she was the helper daughter, looking after older relatives, looking after her own parents, even her own siblings when they were dying, as people did. And so by the time she was in her mid 30s, we were in the middle of a depression. Europe was winding itself up for a war. She was a widow. Her husband had died of sepsis. They couldn't afford to go to hospital. He had appendicitis. One of her children had died. She had a baby on the way. 
Okay, so, so far, so 19th century or 18th century, you know, she knew what dying looked like. She'd yeah. been there. She'd been in it her whole life. by the beds. She knew what to expect. Okay, so now we wind on. And in 1995, I became a consultant in palliative medicine, which was great. And she was still alive. So she was 95. Okay, so she's outlived that life expectancy at birth twice. So a couple of years later, she's still alive and she's talking to me and she's saying, you know, the thing I'm really worrying about, about when I die. Okay, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. She says, I'm really worried about your mum and your auntie and your uncles. Because they don't remember their dad dying. They don't remember their brother dying. Actually, only one of them was born when their brother died. And they haven't had to sit at a deathbed since then. That change in life expectancy, mm. that revolution in health technology stopped us sitting at deathbeds in the space of one generation, which is my parents' generation in the UK and is probably very similar in the USA. We just forgot what ordinary dying looked like. It stopped happening at home. It stopped being a thing that we see coming and go, okay, well, we can't do anything about this, so we'll just be here. It became a thing where you have bells, you take somebody to the hospital, you demand treatment, treatment happens, treatment saves the life, hooray. But we're still doing that when the person's like 108 and has no organs that are still working properly. And we're still sending them off to the hospital and demanding that something gets done because we don't know what else to do. I'm really taking this in, like as a trauma therapist, as someone who has I had early childhood trauma with a death, um, uh, someone who we considered to be a cousin drowned. And what I know as a trauma therapist is it's not the event that's the problem. The death is not the problem. I mean, obviously the death is a problem, but the death is not the problem. It's the meaning that you make from that afterwards. And, you know, being traumatized, I like to say this every session is, you know, about your central nervous system being overwhelmed. In this country, we, we use that word resiliency a lot. I, I try to, again, sort of with the education components, say what we really mean is some sort of restabilization and recovery. Moving towards something that feels like you have your feet underneath you is really what that word to me means in trauma, resiliency. So I have always talked about and thought about that death experience as being this very unfortunate thing that I was exposed to as a child. What I am really edging on right now is if I were in the 1920s, we, we would have lost somebody on the farm. There, my mother would have lost a baby in childbirth. I would have already, it's not about the event. It's about the amount of the exposure. And what, what is the narrative in that story is that was not meant to happen. Of course, it wasn't meant to happen. Children shouldn't die. But that was the only exposure that I had to death for a very long time until then I was in college and, or late high school, I guess my grandfather died when I was in my teens, but I wasn't present for it. I went to a wake and I went to a funeral. So part of what you are describing, which is what we know is true in trauma, you can be traumatized by something very small because it causes your alert system to take it in as a threat. Yeah. Yeah. And if we are exposed to things over and over, they are less threatening to us. 
So this notion that you're describing, which is, first of all, we didn't live that long. And so that's why we're not so great at it. Secondly, we have pulled a lot of this stuff behind closed doors, pregnancy, having a baby, people being ill, it all happens outside of the home. It all, or mostly it all happens outside of the eyes of, you know, certainly vulnerable people. And in this country, I don't actually know if you all are studying this, but in trauma, part of what we're looking back to is this relatively new work about ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. do you know these? And so just for the listeners, you know, ACEs are really these markers, things that have gone on in your family and, you know, significantly under the age of 10, if you have a parent who's incarcerated, you lived in poverty, somebody is drug addicted, but also in there is death and loss. When you have a high ACEs score, you have five of these things. What we're saying is you're, you are more susceptible to trauma as a, as an adult. And so this is just, I'm so grateful for this conversation because I really honestly have not thought about it this way, Mm. that part of my drive is, can't we have all these conversations? Can't we all become more skilled? Couldn't we all pick up a book and learn more? And part of what the hill we're walking up is that we have already sort of strip people's access to this because absolutely absolutely and the other thing that occurs to me as you tell your story of your your cousin drowning is that the the trauma of that is partly the shock of somebody who's a bit like me who has a similar place to me in our family that's right that can happen to that person that could happen to me but it's also that young you is surrounded by shocked, traumatized, devastated adults. Adults. So all all your norms are rocked, aren't they? What their their response says, this is terrible. And and we learn from the response that we see from our grownups. Yeah, I feel so humbled about that as my life story too, because I'm older now than those grownups were when that happened. And even though when I went through therapy, I was like, God, why didn't those grownups do a better job? You know, it's 1983. People were not all about therapy back then. And honestly, I think if you had talked to the grownups around, they wanted you to not be talking about anything that had to do with sex in front of kids, anything that had to do with money in front of kids, anything that had to do with death in front of, you know, kids were meant to be protected. I don't know where that ethos came from, but I, you know, there was a lot of like turning towards religion, which to me sort of felt like magic. Like we're just hoping for some magical relief here but not sort of the straight talk. I have three kids. I think, I think probably something about that experience and the desire to want to heal and shift and change how that feels for me was the driver to where I am today as a trauma therapist. But also I have kids and, you know, they've lost both of their grandparents, both of their grandparents died. And at least with my mom, I mean, they were in the house when she died. So We have very plain conversations. They were very aware that my central nervous system was totally overwhelmed. I could not get the pictures of my mother's dead body out of my mind. So I went to a trauma center where those doctors worked very hard to help me. We didn't hide that. Like if they grow up to write a book about how their mother had a nervous breakdown, I'll be fine with it. I'll blurb it for them. That's fine. What, What you're modeling is, this is a shocking thing. This is my mom. Yeah, I'm really shocked. I'm really sad. I'm going to need help to deal with this. And all of that 
is normal. All of that is okay. It's sad, it's hard, it's difficult, but it's not bad or wrong or shameful. It just, it, it is, this is how it feels. And yeah, how, how fantastic for them to have somebody who's able to model, I'm not okay, because you wouldn't expect me to be okay. Right. But it's okay that I'm not okay. Look at me not being okay. So in a previous job, I used to do statistics. I used to do a lot of correlative regressions. So, you know, people with who wear orange lipstick are more likely to have breast cancer, that kind of stuff. And I have been watching and learning and taking in studies that say, I think the number is something like 60% of people don't need help grieving. 60% of people are, you know, sort of go through it okay on their own. And I feel deeply suspicious of that number, deeply suspicious of that number, because I haven't met a single person that is able to say to me that they don't have some lingering energy that they wish that they had some, some support over. And so part of my soapbox about this really unique experience, you know, I don't, I know one other trauma therapist who she actually had a psychotic break due to a medication that she took. And so she was in an inpatient hospital. I know there's tons more out there, but to me, it's a really unique position to be able to say, no, no, no. I was on the receiving end of the same treatments I trained in and they really work. They're amazing. And so I use the words EMDR because I was a therapist probably for 10 years and was like, I don't know what that is. People keep talking about, but I don't know what it is. And so to say, listen, there are some body centered therapies that can break the frozen ice of some of the way you feel inside your five senses that, you know, that is what we mean when we're talking about treatment for trauma, right? That's not just come in and tell me how you're feeling, which is how we make it look like in the movies. There's real treatment for trauma, but also being able to have the psychoeducation so that when you're out there in the world and someone says every night I go to bed, I mean, when my, when my cousin died, my mom and I had this conversation before she died. When, when he died, my mother was present when they took his body out of the water. My brother actually found him in the water and my mother had PTSD for like a year. And I knew she did as a child because I could see the symptoms and I heard her sort of crying about it. But I said to her, you know, it was many, many years later, listen, there's this thing, there's this treatment that I got related to my experience, which was, you know, much more passive than hers in that Mm. drowning. And it changed how those memories were. And she was just breathless at the idea that there was some sort of help that could, I mean, actually in 1983, I don't think Francine had even formulated the MDR yet, but Mm. there, there are treatments. And so Every time I'm on a podcast, I want people to know that it's not about, do you deserve some relief and help? It's that, why wouldn't you try to sleep, right? Absolutely. One one of the things that happened when With the End in Mind was first published that I just hadn't expected was that readers started to get in touch with me. Yeah. Because I think I thought it was going to be in some libraries, but that, that would be about it. And so I really didn't expect the kind of bestseller thing that yeah. happened. And, and I, you know, I was really, this was a passion project for me. I want people to understand what the process of ordinary dying is 
so they can feel confident that actually, do you know what? I'm not looking forward to it. I like my life. I want to live it for as long as possible. But if that's what's going to happen, hey, I can do that. Or if that's what's going to happen to this person that I love, I, I can support them through that. So it was all just about demystifying dying. Mm. And then I started to get messages from readers. And really early on, I got a message through my publisher from a young woman who said, my mum died 10 years ago. I have been in therapy for PTSD since that time, reliving the noises of her breathing as she was dying. And last night, I read your chapter about the way people breathe when they're deeply unconscious while they're dying. And I understood for the first time that my mother was not choking. She was not drowning. She was not calling out. She was deeply, safely unconscious. Mm. And I slept through the night last night for the first time oh, in 10 years. Because and she I, needed the education. And I just wanted to tell you. Oh. And I sat and cried. Of course you did that. I just sat and now. absolutely wept. Yeah. And then I just thought, okay, I was so frightened of writing this book in case people were mean to me. I'm that shallow, Megan. I'm really sorry. But I are you kidding? Thought, we all are. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody might write a horrid book review. And actually, I don't care what happens now. It's yeah. been worth it for this person. That's enough. But actually, that was the tap on a door that just got opened and opened and opened. And it's been floods of that yeah, kind of witness people saying why didn't anybody explain why didn't to they us? tell me why didn't somebody tell me while I was sitting there listening to my husband making that noise while I was listening sitting there with my son as he looked as though he was gasping why did nobody explain to me that this breathing means that this person is unconscious that this is not suffering and that's what this book is all about, isn't it? It's just actually, the book is just, this is what dying looks like. And then 20 stories of people living until they do that. So it's not a very clever book. It is a very clever book. And it is exactly what you're describing, which is the calling to sharing your knowledge in a way that actually might even put you at personal vulnerability and risk, which I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because Anytime, you know, I have a blog and I write things and it's similar. I put something out there and I'm like, oh my God, I think I just like hung my dirty laundry on the internet. And now people are going to say terrible things. And generally, you know, there are some people that say whatever they want to say, because when you put yourself out there for people to comment on, you can always sort of have haters hating. But generally what happens is someone says, thank God you wrote this. I needed to, to read this today. And I always say to my husband, like, okay, one person said something, I'm going to live another day. I'll keep doing the work that I'm doing. It doesn't take much to feel called, but also the humbling, you know, ex what you described in, in the mem memoir that I've written, I talk about my dad's moaning and I talk about walking into that. I got to him after two days of his sort of active dying mm. and my sisters didn't, you know, the hospice worker who was there said, no, he's fine. He's not in any pain. But I came in and said, let me show you what this is. Let me show you why this is happening. Let me show you. 
there's no reason why everybody shouldn't know that. I remember the first time a client, I was new in the field and a client had a, a relative who, a young relative, a younger brother who he had sat at the, at the bedside of as he died. And he said, the thing that I can't get out of my head is the moaning. And we did EMDR, but I remember putting that it, you know, that locked itself in my brain. Like, I wonder what that moaning was about. The way I got information is I asked people who did that kind of work and they were like, oh yeah, that's totally normal. The same way that when my grandmother was dying, my mother described this like butterfly pattern, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like an ink stain on her body that to her, it was like an image of a angel. And I went again to peers and they were like, oh, well, you know, that has to do with this part of the body and the way it's shutting down. And the notion that some people in order to settle in order for their anguish and their suffering to settle is that they need the psychoeducation of what the body does when it dies. And we have put that in a behind closed doors I'm not not even sure it's behind those closed doors anymore. I think I think we forgot it so long ago now that, you know, nurses who are going through their university programs now come from this population of patients, of people who don't know what ordinary dying looks like. Medical students and nursing students and paramedics, they go through their university programs to be trained how to save lives. Yeah. So nobody talks to them about, you know, on the other hand, actually the USA has the joint worst death rate in the world. Right. You know, like, cause it's the same as the UK, it's a hundred percent. And, <laughs> you know, at the point where somebody is now dying, did you know that that's a process? Like yeah. digestion is a process, like giving birth is a process. It's got these very clear stages. The stages are different lengths in different people, but you know, it's kind of predictable. And if they're doing this now, then they'll be doing that next. And you can talk to them about it in anticipation so they can prepare themselves. You can talk to families at the bedside. You can say, this noise that your mom is making, do you, do you know what that is? Oh yeah, she's in terrible pain, isn't she doctor? Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm just gonna sit down here now and let's just look at your mum. Let's look at her skin. And actually, isn't her skin really rather lovely? Mm. And is she frowning? No, no, she's not frowning. And I'm feeling for a pulse here. And a pulse, yeah, it's not terribly fast. It's not going fast like somebody who's distressed. Actually, it's a little bit faint as well. That tells me her blood pressure's getting a little bit lower. So what happens to people's blood pressure if they've got really bad pain? Yeah, that's right. It goes up, doesn't it? So actually, do you know what? I think that this is a person who is not in pain, but she is making a funny noise, isn't she, when she breathes out? I think that's because she can't feel the back of her throat anymore. I think that's because she's so deeply unconscious now that she doesn't know that her vocal cords are a little bit closed and she breathes out and she goes, hmm. And do you know what? I think that tells us that she's really safely unconscious. And this is part of the process. I wonder if you've seen any other changes in our breathing. So sometimes we see people's breathing getting fast for a while and then slow for a while and then fast again. Oh yeah, she's been doing that as well, doc. Yeah, okay, so your mom's doing it right. Her body knows what to do. She's following the process. She's okay. 
But I'm glad then, that you said it's really important that you know. And you know, after this phase, there'll be a phase where breathing starts to slow down. There'll be gaps. There'll be longer gaps. If the kids are in the room, you know, they'll see that. They might need to ask you what's happening. And eventually, do you know that there'll be, there'll be a gap and then you'll realize, that, oh, there isn't going to be another breath. So all that Hollywood stuff, all know. Of, you know, the I last know. breath. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So if the kids are in the room, that's going to be okay. She's not going to suddenly do something that will terrify them. It's okay. If the grandchildren want to come in, why don't you bring them in? Let them bring their pictures in. Let them come and say goodnight and goodbye because it's okay. She is dying, but she's doing it in the time-honored way and she's really safe and we can be with her. That's okay. And what I often talk to folks about when they are able to anticipate death is the trying to keep their own body regulated, right? So get education. And if that helps you, now you understand they're not in pain, take 10 deep breaths so that you can be in the presence of that noise without the same alertness. Your amygdala sort of, you know, constricted, doing that thing where it causes you to feel startled. Or, you know, think about if bringing your children into the room is going to cause you some sort of distress because you're going to go from, I talk to people a lot about this. It was my experience. You know, it's sometimes difficult to be the daughter of someone who is dying and the mother to children who are going to have a response. So I, I talk a lot about, but really from a trauma perspective, again, what we know is people can go through unbelievable things as long as their body is able to stay regulated or comes back into regulation quickly. And so after a distressing event, having someone to hug so that you can breath on breath, heartbeat on heartbeat, you know, those are the kinds of things that I try to hand people. And I've always tried to hand people breath work and and grounding strategies as a trauma therapist as a grief informed trauma therapist, part of what I'm looking for is, you know, let's see what the norms are in this experience. You're not failing at grief. The metaphor that I always use for people is that I wasn't a mother until I had a child. And I really was not a griever until I had a primary attachment loss. Hmm. And now I'm still you know, kind of in that feel theory way, I'm still trying to grow my capacity to grieve, you know, both of my parents in a way that doesn't dysregulate me, but I I just think it's going to be a lifelong process. And every piece of death that we can make less scary sets up the part after, which is the grieving part. And that that feels more manageable because my job as a therapist isn't to teach someone how to do something I can't probably do that. It's to help them lean on the belief that they can, Mm -hmm. that there is no reason why they could not. Even though, you know, I had a woman on my podcast the other day who brought her son into the hospital because he had a sore leg and he died like seven days later of a explosive rare cancer. He had a stroke. You know, people don't even want me to finish the sentence of that story because what we say is I would never recover. I would never be able to live. I would never be able to manage that story. And yet people do all the time. Yeah. People are yeah. living with what seems to be untenable loss 
all the time. And I'm not going to, for one second, say it doesn't destroy them because we all know someone who is completely destroyed by loss. Mm -hmm. But my argument would be that probably there's some support that that person was not able to get. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know that we would have rescued them from addiction or wherever we lost them to, but the grief education component to me is we will be grievers, every single one of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's something about knowing what's, I'm going to use the word normal. I'm not sure it's the right word, but I'm going to use the word normal. What's normal about grief? What's normal about the process of dying? What's normal about the, the kind of emotional journey that we go on to deal with those things? The difficulty we've got is that because we don't know, because we're not grievers yet until we are, or we don't know what dying looks like until we've accompanied it, we don't know that we don't know. So we put stuff in our heads to fill that vacuum that we get from Hollywood, newspaper headlines. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I often talk to medical students and say, okay, talk to me about air travel. I want you to imagine that the only thing that you know about air travel is newspaper headlines, right? (laughs) Would you get on a plane? No way. Well, of course you wouldn't get on a plane because what we've got is reporting of the extraordinary, the bizarre, the highly, highly unusual, but that's all we've got. So all those planes that took off on time, didn't fall out of the sky. Nobody had a gunfight with the captain in the cockpit. There wasn't some drunken brawl on board. It arrived at the right. No snakes on the plane. No snakes on the plane. Wasn't brought down by fighter jets over Ukraine, whatever. You know, it just kind of very boringly took off from one airport, served everybody drinks en route, landed at another airport. Everybody got off again. It was okay. So mostly dying is a process. Yeah. Is okay. Mostly grieving is a vehicle for us to work out how to be in a place that this really important person or life expectation or whatever the thing is we're grieving isn't there anymore. And it's awful, but it's also okay we we can do it it's just we don't like that we need to do it yeah and I don't want to denigrate grieving and you know I I got my I've got my grievers badges yeah I know that it's awful but I also know that it is what it is and that we can do it even though we wish so much that we didn't have to. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the reason I say to people, listen, I took, I had to take six months off after my mom died and I I would never have expected that ever in a million years. And actually it's okay. Like, you know, it was a very challenging resource wise for my family. It's been a, you know, financial recovery and a recovery in terms of just in my marriage with my children to, to have been that impacted. I'm not somebody who's like, and it was the most beautiful thing. And I've changed my entire life, even though there has been a big pivot in my work life. I more am in the, in, in that middle space of like, we're all going to have to figure out how to do this. And actually most of us do figure out how to do it. If we could do that with more connection, education, and, and less sense of chaos, I just think it would be better for all of us. 
And, and again, part of, part of what I normally do on the podcast is say to people, listen, crying is one way to grieve that shifts some energy. Many people fall asleep after they cry. You know, we think we're never going to stop crying. That doesn't actually happen. The body can't cry forever. It runs, you know, your vagus nerve will make you fall asleep. Don't worry. There's also all of these other daily activities that people do with new loads of energy. They suddenly are drawn to exercise more, or they, for some reason, have been cooking a lot, or they're watching TV all the time, or, you know, they're really compelled to go and clean out their dad's closet and they want to, you know, give the clothes away that all of those are activities of grieving. And I like to sort of make those concrete and, and, say to folks, you know, if you used to be a painter when you were 12 and all of a sudden you're drawn towards painting, there was probably a reason why you were doing it when you were 12. It's probably something similar right now. I bet it was emotional. Go get some paints and see what happens. Right. I want to ask you about two things before I let you go, because I know Mm -hmm. I have taken up so much of your time. Will you tell folks about your new book, which I saw you unbox on I, I want, I mean, your delight again, everyone should follow you on Instagram because your Instagram is maybe it's surprising. Maybe it's not what you would expect when you hear this woman specializes in death, that your Instagram is full of life, but I loved that. And I just, you know, I know that there are going to be people who have heard you talk and say, I want to know more about that. So tell us about the book, maybe when we can expect it in the U S and I would also love for you to tell folks about the art that you create, because I do think it is extremely extraordinary so either one you okay can, okay you know, well I'd, I'd start with the art because it's interesting when you said I want you to talk about your art I thought oh what art does she mean but it's the Instagram thing so it is I I you don't even define yourself as an artist that's found, I found it very relaxing to play with images in order to see if you start to use one of those little apps that yeah makes lots of little bits from an image and you can manipulate the original image so that maybe there's some little thing that's coming across to the edge of the the picture so it might be the paw of a cat or it might be you know the the twig in a flower arrangement or a blade of grass or whatever when you mirror image that they join up they make a little arch well that's interesting so you can start to form images that are abstract yeah. But show interesting connections and movement through the whole big image that's made up of just a little portion of something. And now it doesn't look anything like the original yeah. image. So what's really nice for me is you don't need a fancy camera, you can use your phone. You don't need a great photographer's eye. And these things almost just assemble themselves. But for me, it's a kind of I hadn't thought of it as art. It's a kind of contemplative practice of working out what it will become and what it then says, what it reminds me of. So some of those posts are just, so I made this and then it made me think about. Yeah. And and usually the things that I'm made to think about because I'm so aware that our days are finite, I'm very focused on what's today about what's this for where's the joy in the moment and I think I'm really really lucky 
that that's the way that this work has impacted me. Yeah. And in fact, when you meet most people who work in palliative or end of life care or work in the funerals industry, you know, people who are very, very aware of the finiteness of life very often have a sense of making the most of the present, not in any kind of grandiose way, you know, I'm yeah. not anything magnificent, but just to be mindful, to be, be here now, to just enjoy it. So, so that's what the art is about. And I just really enjoy doing that. I've been quite tickled that there are people who, who say, oh, these, these are really lovely. And, oh, you've got a great eye. I say, no, 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 I'm really not clever with this at all it's just a really joyful thing to do to play with the images so that's well, what we yeah, it, it is I think there's something super appealing about the mystery of it right so for you and I are talking about it but just for our listeners it's almost like wallpaper right where it's like this geometric pattern is created and what you help us see is that it was created off of one photograph but it, you would have very little capacity to know the way that it started. I think of artistic creation as a reflection, a transformation of some energy that we hold inside our body. Mm -hmm. I grew up singing and I, you know, I, a therapist one time was like, oh, so you sing when you're sad. And I was like, wow, I never noticed that before. I mean, it sounds like you should sing when you're happy, but I don't, I sing when I'm sad. So beautiful vocal melodies, but also I have a big voice. So it does actually allow me to physically release yeah. some of that energy. There's something about the repetitive pattern that feels like, oh, you get to just sort of lean in and be lost in this. Yeah. So I'm always interested. And it's a question I always ask people, what do you do that sort of is a relief and a release for you? Mm. Because in grief work, I would say that that's grieving. But I think most of us are having to take whatever the heavy load is, whatever the, the burdensome energies are and transform them so that we can keep moving through life without feeling heavy and burdened. Yeah, and there's no right. way doing your work and my work, we have to have those things. Mm. I don't think running is any better than creating, you know, geometric photographs. But I, but I have loved watching them on your Instagram. Oh, thank and you. I'll tell you what I'm people... going to try to I'm going to see if I can save our screen here and I'll make I'll make one out of us so the excitement yesterday on Instagram I, I, yes. I very very rarely post photos of of myself or my, or my people because I feel my my social media presence is is is, is about the message yeah um, and I don't want to set up an expectation of you know the kind of person I am or the kind of family we live in sure. or what our home looks like or anything like that but yesterday I was so excited Help it. because <laughs> There was loads and loads of correspondence from with the end in mind, but lots of it was, okay, I'm convinced we have to have these conversations, but my mum won't even start the conversation. My kids it? close me down every time I try and talk about it. Or it's all very well trying to talk about dying, but have you ever tried to talk about whether or not your parents need to be in a care home? And so there are all of these really important conversations and actually there are ways of having those conversations aren't there that that we can that they're not complicated skills it's about getting out of your head a little bit and and seeing yourself as a companion and I think that one of the things is that when everybody writes they say what do I need to say 
you know, is there a formula? What are the words? And actually, the, the secret is that you're not giving somebody a talking to, you're giving somebody a listening to. Yeah, so I started to think about how I would write this book. My publisher in the UK said, oh, yeah, OK, that sounds good. We'll publish that for you. I got my contract in January and then COVID hit in February. And I went back to work for a while because of that. Yeah, of so, so it's had to be written in a bit of a hurry. But anyway, the carton arrived yesterday. Yeah. And this is what was in it. And so I think the design on the cover of, you know, just from speech marks is so, so clever. It and, is. And, and, and what it's about is, yeah, is, is writ large on the front. It so is. this is coming out in September in Britain and Ireland and the Commonwealth. But I'm very sad to tell you that at the moment I haven't got a publisher in North America. Oh, well, this book. well, well so with the end in mind was published by Little Brown okay. and it's and it's done reasonably well. But I don't I don't know what's going to happen to this one. Well, so I mean, I, I just there. sort of had that cold sensation that I have when something is true. I feel it across my body in that sort of empath empathetic empathy way and I have a hunch that that book is going to find us over here when I, when I got out of treatment I read 88 books about grief and loss because I I am academic in my background and I don't want to write something that's already been written I would rather just put that book in somebody else's hands and I can't wait to get my hands on this book because you know exactly what you just described is the truth which is when people come to me and say you know, can you give me a list of the things I should not say to someone who is grieving? And by the way, there are plenty of people who will give you a list. I am not going to be one of those people because someone who was super offended by you saying, well, your grandmother's looking down at you in heaven, the person to their left, that would be the best thing that they could ever hear. Mm -hmm. So there's no such thing as a list of things that you can say. It's attuning to the person that you're trying to support attuning to them, believing you can do that, and then offering what is genuine that you have. I had someone not so long ago say to me, well, I got to make this lasagna for somebody because they're, and I was like, what do you mean you are making lasagna? You are a terrible cook. That is not a good idea. And I said, well, you know, they're doing a food thing. And I was like, yeah, but you do, all, you have amazing other skills. Why are you doing food? And so it's that concept of like, how do we show up to these conversations mm -hmm. feeling as though we are empowered to have the conversations. There are so many things in our life, including our first kiss, which is super awkward, that we don't say it's awkward, so just stop. It's awkward, so don't call. It's awkward, so just stay at home. We say, yeah, I know it's a little awkward, but you gotta go on the first date if you wanna fall in love with someone, you gotta, no, you gotta go through it. And this is, you know, I just can't wait to read the book and be able to put it in people's hands. And I just can't believe for a second, the wisdom of it is not going to find its way to all of us over here, but I'll be over in the UK. So I get to pick my own copy. I am unbelievably grateful for the generosity of this conversation. More, I am grateful for the work that you are doing. I know it is a calling and I really do know because I have read and consumed and listened to you on podcasts and and, and really paid attention to the offerings that you give us. And even just in this one conversation, you have shifted how I'm thinking about the deficit that we're in around this conversation of death and dying in a really profound and important way for me. So I'm going to walk away from this and just really crunch on that and think about that. So I'm just 
super grateful. And I hope our paths continue to cross. I am hoping that, that those of us that are, have been working together during COVID over zoom and technology, will get a chance to have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine together at some point. But it would be lovely, wouldn't it? I'll drink to that. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Thank you really so much for your time, but thank you so much. Really, Megan, Megan, thank you. I've learned loads from listening to you as well. It's you are you are too generous to say that. I'm not sure that's true, but I I really I just admire your work and I'm so grateful. Well, I really just consider that conversation one of the luckiest of my life. Dr. Mannix is so extraordinary and generous and warm and beautifully spoken. Her information is in the show notes. If you want to go find out more, order her books. You can get one of them here. My hope is the new one, Listen, will be available to all of us. Please also come over onto Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast if you're listening. It really honestly does make a difference. Five stars and a comment. It makes a difference to me. I read them all. And it helps me think about who I'm going to interview and how I interview. The music, because everyone asks, was written and played by my brother, Brendan Reardon. If you're looking for more from me, please come over to my Instagram, which is Megan Reardon Jarvis, or come over to my website, which is www.griefismysidehustle.com. Thanks. Mm-hmm.